Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I have the privilege of sitting here with the executive director of the Brazelton Touchpoint Center at Boston Children's Hospital, an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Joshua Sparrow is on so many pediatric advisory councils and has been instrumental in transforming public, academic, medical, and policy makers' understanding of evidence on helping children and families thrive and highlighting the importance of the complex challenges of raising children to their full potential across diverse contexts. So I am so happy to have you here. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And did I say you were a child psychiatrist? <laughs> you didn't, but... <laughs> I feel like that's kind of important information. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have so many things that we could talk about. And today, because I happen to know that Josh... Actually, let me mention a couple of books that you've written. You co-authored the Touchpoints... What is it? Touchpoints? Birth to Three Birth to, and, and Three, three to, to Six. I mean, they are... Actually, all the pediatricians I work with call them their Bible. <laughs> um, so they're they're really wonderful. And um, I have also Discipline the Brazelton Way by T. Barry Brazelton and Josh Sparrow. Um, and I think that today we're going to focus on discipline. Let's dive into, I don't even want to say challenging behaviors yet. Let's just talk about the approach that um, from the beginning of having children— the approach to discipline as a learning opportunity versus punishment. Uh, what are some things that parents can keep in mind as they're thinking about their toddler, which I think is the beginning of, although we could start at nine months, but the beginning of when parents start to say like, why, what's happening here? Why such big feelings and what am I supposed to do? What are some overarching themes that we can think about? So the first is, as you said, to think of discipline as teaching, not as punishment. And so when there is a challenge, to take a deep breath and to ask yourself, uh, how can I use this as an opportunity to help my child learn? Because that's actually my job. And I know perfectly well, having been a parent and worked with lots of other parents, that you absolutely do need to stop the action, create safety, and manage the immediate situation. So don't get me wrong, I totally get that. But if all we do is manage, and we don't also think about what's the child working on, what's a child struggling to learn, then we miss that opportunity. I, th I think that we can do both. And if we do that second part, 
then we're likely to have fewer of these behavior management challenges going forward, partly because when we step back after having stopped the action and created safety to step back into our role as teacher, what do we want our children to learn about themselves, about Mm -hmm. us, about other people, about their role as they grow up? Um, we, We regain our moral authority over our children that we sometimes can lose mm-hmm. if we just um, step into the managing the immediate behavior challenge without also, it's not either or, but also thinking of ourselves as our children's first and most important teachers for life. I also want to go back to the very beginning before toddlerhood okay. to birth mm-hmm. because there are maybe three things that happen at birth that are already about being with your child as a teacher to help them learn Mm -hmm. self-control. The first is, even before they're born, they're already dealing with their different states and with managing them. So deep sleep, light sleep, drowsiness, being alert and aroused, which is that lovely first eye-to-eye contact in the first hours of life sometimes, Mm -hmm. and then the fussing and then the crying, they're already working to figure out which one of those states is what I need to be doing right now, given what's going on inside of me and what's going on around me. How can I sustain this lovely, alert, aroused state when my daddy's looking right into my eyes and holding me just right? And then how can I get myself to sleep when I'm kind of worn out? Mm -hmm. And how can I get myself to screen in a clear way that helps my parents understand um, I'm wet and I need to be changed, right? My needs need to be met. And so from the very beginning... We are also teaching them to manage those states, to manage their distress by the way we hold them, by the way we rock Mm -hmm. them, by the way we use our voice to comfort them. So we're teaching them to manage their states of distress. And then you can flash forward to toddlerhood and to tantrums, and it's the same job. I love how you're saying (laughs) that. You're right. And if you frame it, you never look at a little infant and think, how do I teach through punishing so this child doesn't do this again? You use your body and your voice and your words and your physiology to connect and help them regulate. So now we're thinking with that lens when you get to a toddler who's struggling and in a state of distress. And and the, um, the shift away from punishment to teaching does not mean that you are condoning mm-hmm. behavior, which is unacceptable. Let's actually go through that a little bit because yeah. there is a confusion that Um, not punishing in the way that maybe historically people think of punishing is not giving boundaries or having, you know, having an opinion about and supporting behavior. So let's walk through that a little bit. So I think punishment uh, sometimes can be confused with venting one's own (laughs) distress. That's a problem. And so part of disciplining a child is taking a deep breath and taking stock of what's going on with me right now. Maybe whether or not I believe in timeouts for children, I might need a timeout myself. Uh Because if I'm going to manage the immediate challenge and then help my child learn from it, I need to deal with my own stress first. I think that the other 
thing about punishment is it's this idea of creating a negative or aversive experience. And um, I think that if there is a negative or aversive experience to come from a problematic behavior, it's much better if it comes as a natural consequence of the child's actions, right? So Mm -hmm. if the child bites another child, well, the child will see the other child screaming and yelling and really upset, and that is the consequence. Mm -hmm. So if you can help the child see, you know, when you bite someone, it really hurts, and then they're all upset and they don't want to play with you. So you're not taking out your own feelings on the child, and you're not creating the negative or aversive consequence. You're helping the child see what the natural consequence, which is negative, Mm -hmm. of their behavior to help them learn. That's why you don't want to do that. And part of what you just said that's important, all of what you said is important, but one of the things that happens is that we go into a state of such distress when we see our children act out in a way that just feels like, how did my child just bite? Um, What does this mean for their future? So it becomes a bigger issue because you're trying to solve for the rest of their lives in that one moment and teach them a huge lesson to never, ever do that again. And we go into our own stress response. And if we can just step back and think about what is our intention in this moment, it's to teach my child to keep his mouth to himself, to treat people, you know, peacefully and, and, and get their anger out. And to begin to think out. about other people's feelings. And totally. You actually really need to, of course, comfort the child who was the quote-unquote victim. Right. But the child who did the biting, I mean, you're talking about a year and a half old or two years old, they did not plan to cause that result. And when they see the other child in tears and screaming and everybody rushing to comfort that child, they feel really terrible. So you actually have to go out of your way and go comfort the child who did the biting to help them see what they did, but to give them hope that you can get this under control. Mm -hmm. You can comfort this child and you can work on not biting anymore. And I know you can do it. And it doesn't mean that they won't ever bite again, but they probably won't when they're 20. (laughs) So, right, we should say at a certain age, it it is something to talk to your pediatrician about and maybe seek additional support. But that age is not one or two or three. Yeah. Where were we? We were on empathy and compassion for both the child who bit, who's losing control and experiencing having just caused this other child to have a upsetting reaction and everybody's going to comfort them. And what you're saying is first connect with your child and help them come back from their shame brain or... Um, figure out kind of what they can do next? Yes, because the the last thing that we want to have happen to our children when we are disciplining them is to have them decide, I'm a bad boy, Mm -hmm. and that's all I'll ever be, because then they will behave that way. And particularly when they hurt another child, Mm -hmm. and the fact that they did is really suddenly obvious to them, even though they couldn't imagine that before they did the biting or mm-hmm. whatever the action was, uh, there's a there's that chance that um, depending on the reaction they get from the adults that they decide, I'm just a really horrible little child. I'm really so glad that you're talking about the parent's experience of the child's negative behavior 
in terms of parents' expectations for themselves. I think, unfortunately, perhaps because uh, there are many parents who are having fewer children and many parents who are having children later and many parents who are feeling like I have the power to get the rest of my life organized before I have children and I have a choice about when I have children, that they feel like when they have a child, they're supposed to do that perfectly. (laughs) And in fact, perfection is probably um, just not an option for raising a child because parenting is humbling. Mm -hmm. And anybody who uh, goes through raising a child thinking that they got it all right every time is um, deluding themselves. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a process of trial and error. And it's because there isn't a book, there isn't a recipe. It's not color by numbers because color by numbers gets never gets you to a great work of art, right? Oh, what a perfect way to put it. <laughs> right. So you, your, your child's going to teach you from the very beginning of life, this is who I am. One of the other things at birth that you begin to learn about is this is who I am as your brand new baby, and I am unique and different. And what I need and the way I respond as you help me learn how to manage my distress and get control of myself even as a newborn is going to depend on how I'm put together. Mm. And so you're going to have to make mistakes to figure that out with me. So that's the beginning of temperament. I was just going to say, so maybe we need to get into temperament. And I would also say, I think to keep with this paint-by-numbers thing and that Mm -hmm. that's not where you get that great work of art, Mm -hmm. that it's actually not even a service to a child to be a perfect parent, even if that was a possibility, because— it's not a gift or a favor to anybody to be raised by a perfect person because what does that what message is that for you as a human growing up that you're meant to get it all right and be perfect and there is a paint by numbers system it leaves very little room for growth and and also because parents never are perfect ever if they think that they're supposed to be and communicate to the child then the child feels the pressure to That's reassure right. the parent that they're doing a good job and that actually is not their job. We have to, <laughs> as parents, take care of that need ourselves. And it's impossible if we think we're supposed to be perfect. Mm-hmm. But if we accept that it is humbling and it's a process of trial and error and we cut ourselves some slack and understand we will make mistakes, and it's not our job to never make mistakes. It is our job to face them mm-hmm. and learn from them. Then we will not be putting pressure on our children to reassure us about what terrific parents we are because good luck with that. I am on shrooms. Not what you're thinking, the legal kind. But these mushrooms are still magic. Everyday magic, you might say. This episode of Raising Good Humans is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that mixes shrooms and adaptogens with coffee, cacao, latte, protein powder, and edible skincare. It contains lion's mane, which is a functional mushroom, and your brain's best friend because it supports focus, productivity, and creativity. Fun fact, lion's mane mushrooms have long been used by the Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. Plus, it includes chaga, the king of mushrooms, which supports your immune system with antioxidant properties. 
So no, these shrooms do not contain psilocybin, but they will help your brain. And you might be wondering, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? Because I was, and that seemed very unappealing. But it does not taste that way at all. No sense. It tastes just like regular coffee or just like latte or just like cacao mix or just like chai. There are different flavors. It's made with 100% organic coffee beans, no sugar, no carbs, no calories. As I said, it's organic, it's vegan, it's paleo, it's sugar-free, it's dairy-free. It's awesome. And also because Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee has half the caffeine of regular coffee, you can actually have lots of it. Personally, for me, that's a good thing because I have coffee throughout the day, but this doesn't leave me jittery. The easy-to-use packets, you can kind of put in your pocket, put in your purse, take anywhere, put in your suitcase. And of course, there's a special offer for the Raising Good Humans audience. You receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. You just go to foursigmatic.com slash humans or enter the code humans at checkout. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash humans to receive 15% off your order. I want to get into temperament then because mm-hmm. that really does have implications for how you're going to discipline or communicate or teach or guide your child. And what you were saying was the beginning of talking about different temperaments. So can you dive into temperament? So uh, one... Broadly? Yeah. So one part of temperament is the individual way in which a child handles the demands and opportunities of their environment. So some children are all about stimulation and change, and they're the ones who will rush into the birthday party and just think (laughs) it's all really terrific. Mm -hmm. And then there are children who really need to filter what they take in, and they're the ones who will cling to their parent's leg and kind of look warily around the room and then maybe turn back to the parent and will need time to enter. And there's not, you know, a right or wrong or a better or worse. Important. They're just telling us, this is who I am. This is the way in which I take in what the environment has to offer to me and what the environment demands from me. And that will change the kinds of challenges that they have. There are children who get overexcited and overstimulated by uh, new environments or environments with lots of um, sensory input. And parents learn that I'm going to have to limit this or manage mm-hmm. this or, or, or get out of this situation fairly quickly, or I will have a child who's um, melting down in front of me, right? And then there are others, there are other children who can take in a lot quietly, but after it's over, they're all worn out and they may not let you know with a meltdown, but they may be irritable Mm -hmm. and cranky and clingy. So learning about a child's temperament will tell you about what the challenges are for them as they enter into different environments and how it's going to manifest in terms of the behaviors which are challenging for us, but they're really communications about this is who I am and this is what it was like for me to be in this environment. And again, it doesn't mean that a negative behavior is one that you approve of or condone or reward. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. But once you understand 
what's going on with the behavior, that behavior is always a communication and what is it telling me, then you know how to help the child learn from that behavior so that they can handle it better. Maybe not the next time because mm-hmm. it's all about That's repetition, it. but a hundred times later, they will learn right. if you've understood what they're trying to tell you. And probably anybody listening can think, oh, what? I recognize some of those qualities because I still have them. You know, we're, our temperament lives with us. So mm-hmm. as an adult, I know how much time I can spend with lots of people and lots of stimulation and at what point I would kind of check out. I just have adapted over time so I know how to manage my environment to set it up in a way where I wouldn't be overstimulated or to know that sometimes I will be and that's fine. That's a really good point because, of course, temperament persists throughout life. And another challenge for us as parents is when our temperaments are dramatically different Mm -hmm. from the temperaments of our children, because it can be harder to get inside of their minds and inside of their experience if we're very outgoing and very extroverted and really seek novelty and love risk, and we've got a very quiet, shy, Uh. subdued child. It's hard to get inside their heads. It's hard to understand their experience. And sometimes it's, it's harder to feel connected to them And that can be at the heart of some of our challenges in dealing with behaviorist communication that um, is telling us this child is stressed, even though given our temperament, we just don't see it. Oh, Josh, I have to tell you. So my daughter, I think I've said this before, um, but I have one daughter who has taught me the biggest lesson about this because what my oldest daughter has a similar temperament to me and I get her. We, I, I understand what's happening, and sometimes there's a shorthand, and it's just easier for me. And I'm probably harder on her because I know what she can handle because I'm thinking it's not that she's me. It's that I understand that the way she responds to the environment is very similar. And I have a quiet child who often looks her, – her affect gets a little flat in my mind. To me, I'm like, she looks miserable. And she's quiet. And for years now, she's been saying to me, now she's just about to turn 10. And this wise young child who's taught me so much has to remind me still, she'll, I'll say, are you okay? You seem distressed or you look unhappy. And she says, not everybody smiles all the time and is chatty <laughs> when they're, you know, to express delight. Like I'm in a perfectly good mood. I'm drawing right now. And I just don't, I mean, should I practice smiling more often? And we've had this conversation and sometimes she's shown me, she'll show me a picture of her um, with her serious face and what I think of as her sad face and a picture of her laughing. And she'll say, there are often times when my inside feels like the laughing kid, but my outside looks like this Mm -hmm. very serious kid. And that's just who I am. And to nudge her all the time. When she was younger, I did it a lot more because I've, you know, we've grown up together. I became a parent, you know, just recently myself when my first baby was born. And so I have learned from her that I can't impose what I think her experience is in the environment around her. But I have watched what, you know, I've tried to learn from her what environments she enjoys and what she has to figure out what to do in, how she can get more comfortable in a setting when you just have no choice. And it's been a beautiful opportunity to take temperament from the page of, you know, studying it to real life and those real interactions. So I live in that world where 
I have a totally different experience with her because we have totally different temperaments. So another point that you're getting at is often if there's more than one child, they have different temperaments. And with a first child, if you understand that child's temperament and you can connect with it, you may feel like, I've got this. Mm-hmm. I, I know what's going Nailed, on. Right? Nailing this, yeah. Right. And then if the second child has a very different temperament, which is not uncommon and is also different from your own, you can suddenly feel very lost. Mm-hmm. What's a good way to set them up for success or to talk to them about expecting distress and what their plan is for managing it? Do you have a specific challenge in mind? Let's think of a challenge. I was thinking about bedtime. Bedtime is a, I, I mean, what a, <laughs> what a good challenge that is. I think everybody can yeah. acknowledge that that is a challenge sometimes. Yeah. So uh, bedtime. Well, one way of setting the child up for success and setting ourselves up for success is to, again, understand what's inside the challenge. Mm-hmm. So if we've been at work all day, and feeling like we've been missing out on being our child's parent and over the course of the first year or two, feeling like we missed the first step, we missed the first word, mm-hmm. we missed, you know, some of the good stuff that we wanted to be there for. Uh, and when we get home, got to make supper, got to, you know, rush through everything. You know, either we're exhausted and ha- have a hard time staying alert and clear-minded enough to really tune into the child, Mm. or we want to extend the time and make it more exciting and more fun and playful. Get more bang for your buck. Right, because this is all the time we have. And both of those things on our side can make it hard to focus on Mm -hmm. how do we help the child settle herself down towards being ready to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And there also is for many of us and the challenge of separating Mm. because there's a way in which going to bed and going to sleep is really about dealing with our um, complete aloneness in the Mm. world. And some of us (laughs) bring that (laughs) from, you know, something deep Mm. and and dark in our own, you know, early, early experiences. Mm -hmm. So there's actually really a lot going on with bedtime. Uh, So, First, I think many families have lost the experience of family mealtimes. And some of it's understandable because when you've got a toddler who's not eating and is driving you crazy because you think they're going to starve to death or they're dumping their food over the edge of their high chair, who wants a family (laughs) mealtime, right? Um, On the other hand, if you can shift your expectations and understand, well, yeah, they have to learn about gravity. So they will dump their food over the edge. So don't put it, don't Don't give them thousands of pounds of food on their (laughs) plate. Yeah. And not stuff that's a real mess. Put a tarp (laughs) down on the floor, you know, bring an umbrella. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Just give them little, little bits of dry food and, and understand that there is this period from about 12 months to 18 months where they're going to want to do it all by myself. And mm-hmm. you're, you, you may have to supplement them with a vitamin if your pediatrician tells you you should. Uh, but so if you shift your expectations and understand it's going to be a short meal and then you don't keep them at the table when they're ready to go, Meal's a, over. You're, you're done. So there's no struggle. But I think to be able to have some kind of social interaction, even if it's short, at mealtime is the beginning Mm -hmm. of getting ready for bed. Then the next thing is, 
if you can carve out time to be tuned into the child to do quiet, slow activities. So probably not anything that's screen or video because mm-hmm. the light actually can throw off right. sleep and, it, and you don't really have control over the level of stimulation and probably not a lot of gross motor stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, when you don't get to do gross motor stuff like throwing a ball around or having a pillow fight during the day, that could be something that you're just dying to do or your child's dying to do. But it gets everybody more excited and you're mm-hmm. sort of working towards being slow and quiet and boring and dull. Mm-hmm. And, and and also then to have a clear set of rituals that you do exactly the same way every night. So we finish dinner, then we clear the table, then we sit and do something quiet, whatever is age appropriate. Then we get in our pajamas or we have a bath and we get in our pajamas and we brush our teeth and then we have three stories. Right. And um, all of this is a routine right. that it's you get routine. used to every it, day. Yeah. So so it's completely reliable. It's completely predictable. And then you don't have to make up new rules and reinforce because mm-hmm. it's you know every, that's what we do. Right. And then when there's a deviation from it, where they're trying to extend the playtime because they don't want the bath, then you can begin to say, well, you know, this is the time by which we you have to be in bed, whatever it is, seven or seven thirty or eight, and so. If we lose time here, we're going to have to have less time for the bath, mm-hmm. or we're going to have to have two stories instead right. of three stories. So this you is keep also— the boundary. You keep the bedtime. Yeah, right. You, you keep that limit. And this is also an example of connecting the consequence to their action. Mm-hmm. It's not me wanting to hurt you or me doing something arbitrary because I have right. more power. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you know, you're not doing what I say— but when we get to 8 o'clock, you're in bed whether right. you had the three stories or you didn't right. have any, right? So so it's it's the child's use of time that is driving the consequence. Yeah, that's actually another great point because that bedtime period where people are tearing their hair out sometimes and parents get so frustrated that it sounds like a threat even. Like, if you don't get into bed, we're not reading any books. Um well, you but, don't want to do that. <laughs> but, right. But if you can reframe it as, let's get this done so that we have time to read our three books, then you have a child who's excited to join you and participate. And if they don't, the consequence makes sense. It doesn't feel like an act of aggression against them. Yeah. It might, but. Well, you 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 really want bedtime to never be a punishment, mm-hmm. um, but to be um, looking forward to having you know, the reading time together. And so, yeah, the child may protest, um, but that's okay. I think that's another really important point, mm-hmm. actually, is your job is not to always have yeah. your child be happy. Right. Oh, God. It's, right. It's, 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 and actually, that pressure gets in the way of playing your role as teacher. Mm-hmm. So when you say, well, hey, you know, we're, we're taking too long to get into your pajamas, so we're only going to have time for two books. Once you say that, you have to stick to it no matter how much they protest. And you can say, well, I was really looking forward to reading three <laughs> books too, but we can't because we don't have time. And then to be with them with their frustration or anger mm-hmm. and to— you know, validated in the sense of, well, I'm upset too because I wish that we had time. But, you know, maybe tomorrow night we can think together about let's get through the pajama putting on faster so we can have three stories. Mm-hmm. So um, you don't want to change the limit that you set. You want to stick with it, whether they're angry or not. And you want to be with them through the anger so that they can accept, well, yeah, actually, that's what happens. Yeah. So, uh, 
I, I think that's part of the job that's also really hard for parents with the pressure to be perfect and when parents also have a lot of other pressures on them and just are wishing they could have the good stuff with a child. But to understand, you know, if you can set the limit and stay with your child through their frustration and their anger and not, you know, be fuzzy about the limit because you can't tolerate their anger, mm -hmm. that's actually a gift because what you're saying to them is your unconditional love is so strong that you can handle their anger. You mm -hmm. can handle their frustration and whatever they're feeling because they have to deal with this limit doesn't uh, threaten the relationship. So you don't have to take it back. Mm -hmm. You don't have to always be about making them happy because the relationship can hold all of those big feelings. Right. All feelings are welcome. All behaviors are not. And that right. is yeah. important for them to know. And also, if we try to make them happy all the time, what happens when they get out into the world and they don't know that actually feeling frustrated and upset about things and angry about things is part of Part of how, life. We, how we live life. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. And we just are there to let them know, as you said, there's unconditional love. And also the boundary of like, I'm in charge of making sure your brain grows and you get sleep. So I have listener questions that listeners DM. And in no great coincidence, there are many questions about discipline today. So normally I would, we would say goodbye and I would read these questions and answer them. But I think let's take advantage of Josh Sparrow being here and um, have Dr. Sparrow help out with answering these questions. And we can put kind of into practice the discipline conversation. So this is Gabby from South Africa. And she said, I love that I stumbled upon your podcast. I have a happy, healthy, almost 22-month-old boy. The thing I'm concerned about is on days when he doesn't want to go to daycare or on days when I fetch him, dad usually fetches him, and his routine is broken, he has a meltdown for a bottle. He is fed, eats like a champ, and has lots of liquids but cries for milk. It's at the point now where I have colored water on hand just in case. At night, he calls me demanding his bottle repeatedly, and the struggle continues. I'm exhausted. I do feel it's a comfort thing, but not sure how to break the habit without being that horrible mom. He used to have a pacifier, but he stopped taking it at six months. Am I right to want to break the habit, or do I just leave it for him to work through on his own? Hmm. That is a great question, and it's a fairly common one yeah. because um, children use their mouths for comfort. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at birth, some of them are already getting their fingers and hands to their cheek, and then they root uh, towards the mouth. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's built into us to use our mouths to soothe. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is the, the physical sensation of touching, and then there's the sucking. And then, mm -hmm. then if it, there's actually food, right. there's all the Add comfort that. that comes with that. So I, I think it's, it's not so much about breaking the habit as about broadening the set of self-soothing tools mm. that the child has. And that will not happen overnight, but you can begin to introduce or to steer the child's direction towards or to reinforce other things that the child does to soothe, not in the moments that are the most distressing. And for a 22-month-old, separation is really, is really distressing. distressing. And the end-of-the-day transition mm -hmm. is really distressing. But at other 
moments of milder distress, Mm -hmm. there are other things that even a 22-month-old can do. And it might be uh, that there's a favorite stuffed animal. There might be that there's a blanket to hug and to Mm -hmm. squeeze. Um, There might be a hugging and squeezing of you or Mm -hmm. of his dad. Or your (laughs) T-shirt. Right. (laughs) So um, depending on what the, the specific source of distress is, uh, uh, a tool to self-soothe that matches to begin to broaden. I also would wonder about whether or not for the times when he's demanding the bottle, and I'm not sure why you would give him colored water. I, that was yeah, I've yeah. never actually seen that before. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just stick with water. Let that go. And especially at bedtime, mm-hmm. um, water and not anything else because you don't want anything else in, in, a, in a young child's mouth at night. Um, because you'll get there's a risk of tooth decay, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I would wonder about when he builds up to distress. Can you catch it earlier? Mm-hmm. And if you can catch it earlier, is there something else that would soothe him, like holding him or picking him or, or hugging him, or distracting him, mm-hmm. or telling a story or singing a song um, that would prevent him from? escalating all the way to having to have his bottle. I guess the last thing I I wonder about is behavior, children's behavior is their way of telling us what's going on with them. And I would just want to have my eyes open about, is there something right now that's worrying him about separating and reconnecting? Mm -hmm. Has there been somebody who's moved away, someone at the child care center who he was close to has moved to another position, is not there anymore, someone in the family who is gone? Are there there experiences with separation and loss that are making him more distressed? And I'm not saying that there are, but but, but just things to yeah. observe and yeah. think about. And yeah. and maybe if this happens more when not if dad usually gets him and when mom comes, that's when he's melting down for the bottle. It may be just letting him know in the morning who's picking him up and it's gonna be mom to kind of prepare him for that because there must be something about mom that mm. um he, where he feels compelled to demand that bottle. And maybe it's just that mom gives it to him. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe if he knows in advance what to expect and they can, I mean, he's only 22 months old, but it might be less um, of a broken routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that um, the only other thing I'd want to ask about or comment about is that um, she said that, she was worried breaking a habit would be that she's a horrible mom. Yeah. So, um, no, <laughs> I would say. Um, and also, I think that's a really hard, a very typical way of thinking about ourselves. And maybe that was said, you know, in, in, in as a joke or whatever. But No, I think parents worry about that a lot. And uh, part of the worry is we do have to do things as parents that do provoke distress and mm-hmm. discomfort in her children. And that is part of her job. We have to think carefully about, you know, if, when, why, and how. And there certainly are um, sources of distress that we might cause that we do not need to and should not. Mm-hmm. But when we're helping them learn how to grow up, to deal with new challenges, to control their impulses, to accept that they can't do something they want to do or have something they want to have. Those are all really typical situations where part of our job is saying, sorry, but you can't. 
mm-hmm. and then being with them through their distress. And it's hard to do if you're thinking that makes you a horrible mother mm-hmm. or father. So Dr. Josh Sparrow, just confirming that you said you are not a horrible mother <laughs> if you are, you know, helping your child's sit through the distress of just the the wear and tear of not getting what you want and growing up and having to have those experiences. Not that we want to, you know, impose all, all these horrible boundaries, but just the ones that make sense for them, that are healthy, that we have to sit there and help them through the frustration without fixing it. Does that seem like a reasonable thing to say? Yeah, there are some things that we can't make better. Mm-hmm. And our job is to help the child accept that this is the reality reality, and discover that they can live with this reality. That's really how we're preparing them for life. Okay. Um, thank you. Okay. Let's see. Here's another one. So here's the question. My eight-year-old is highly sensitive and can have some very big emotions, especially after a long day at school, that can be explosive. I'm concerned about my five-year-old who gets very scared and sad when he sees his brother get upset. He's quiet and I think internalizes these moments and is somewhat of a peacemaker. I want to comfort the five-year-old and make sure he doesn't grow up worried about his brother and feel like he's walking on eggshells. And I can see him mimicking his eight-year-old, sometimes his eight-year-old brother to get attention. What's the best way to communicate to my five-year-old to help him feel it's not his fault that his older brother will be okay? And what's the best way for me to help my eight-year-olds have less explosive behavior? So uh, let's start with the eight-year-old. There's probably not enough information to know why the explosive behavior happens, but there are lots of important places to look. I would want to know more about what is hard for him about the day at school. Is it simply that he is very sensitive to sensory input, to light, to sound, to activity, Mm -hmm. to that kind of sensory stimulation. And he just uses up a lot of energy to handle all of that. Because if that's what it is, I don't know whether or not there'd be a way of reducing it in the class, but the reality is all of the children would benefit Mm -hmm. from more modulated sensory input because then they can focus on what they need to regardless of their sensory Mm -hmm. sensitivity profile. That's a great point. The second would be, so, so maybe, the second would be if that's what's going on, to really plan when he gets home some downtime to de-stimulate and have that just be an accepted routine for him before he blows up um, to have some really mm-hmm. settled, quiet, peaceful time that's pleasurable, enjoyable for him, but in a really uh, de-stimulating way. But there could be other things. If he has a learning disability, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying does because we don't have information about that, but a child who has a learning disability um, goes through the day feeling frustrated mm-hmm. and scared about, like, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not able to succeed where other kids are? And depending on how the other kids and the teacher handle it, can also feel... Um, like a total failure. Mm-hmm. Also true for kids with things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that they go through the day uh, having limits set over and over and over right. again. And by the time they get home, they may have just really had it. There may be bullying going on, but I, I think it'd be worth getting more of a sense of what's going on at school. And the conversation needs to be one not in which the teacher feels blamed or accused because Teachers shut down just as we do as parents, right? right? And children do. So if it's more just a sort of sharing 
the problem and asking for help and being curious about the teacher's ideas and solutions. Uh, so those are, those are just some thoughts. The, the last thing, which I think is a segue to the five-year-old, is to think about part of our job to help children build self-observation and self-understanding skills. So it would be helpful for the child in uh, the eight-year-old in a non-judgmental and accepting way to learn about himself. This is a thing about me that mm-hmm. I need to understand and accept so that I can learn what I have to do to not explode. Because I'm sure he feels terrible yeah. about that. Uh, and that would be, I th- think, part of uh, what one would try to do in five-year-old terms for the five-year-old is to give him some simple language that isn't scary and isn't in too much detail about the eight-year-old's experience that relieves him of his worry and of his burden. Because children from a very early age are really watching other people, and they're making their own theories and explanations about why people do what they do, whether it's a sibling or a parent. And Usually at age five and even younger, part of the theory is it's my fault. Mm -hmm. Either I didn't do something I should have or I did something that I shouldn't have. So giving him some clear, simple language, and it doesn't have to be a lot, and it should be language that would be okay for the eight-year-old to hear and to use too, because in families there are no secrets. Mm -hmm. So um, it might be, you know, when your brother comes home from school, he's worked hard right, right. all day long and used up a lot of energy. And when you're um, and when you're doing that all day long, um, you can get overwhelmed and really need a break. And maybe um, we need to work on helping him get his break sooner. But that's my job and not your job, right? right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, that was a you're that was a treat. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and please don't forget to send DM questions to my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to give me feedback, subscribe, rate, and if you feel like it, leave a review letting me know what you're connecting with and what you like about the podcast. And I'll talk to you next Friday.